Welcome to the Stacking Slabs podcast. Join Brett to get the latest sports cards investment advice, hear from industry experts that are deep in the trenches, and find out when to turn left when the rest of the market is going right. Get eBay ready, get PayPal ready. Let's be students of the game and stack those slabs. What is up? Welcome back to the Hobby Hustle. It's Friday. You know what that means. Another conversation with someone in the sports card hobby who we're all going to learn from, and I promise this week is no different. This is a big week. I got my man Carvin Chung, the architect of the exquisite product. Yes, you heard that right. Exquisite. I'm talking about the big boy cards. Yes, he was in the game helping bring that product to life. Worked at Panini as well. Worked on the distribution side. He's a collector at heart. He has been educating us all on Instagram. I hear he's in the clubhouse too. I'm not quite there yet, but maybe I'll join now that I know Carvin's telling stories like he told today on Stacking Slabs. If you're liking what you're hearing, hit that subscribe button. Leave, leave me a review. Tell me how I'm doing. Hopefully you're liking the weekly RIP newsletter. Hit the link in my Instagram bio, at Stacking Slabs. I'd love to send you a copy. This is a good one. Carvin at Carvin15. Go follow him now. Let's kick it to the conversation. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Stacking Slabs Hobby Hustle. I am honored today. I am joined by Carvin Chung. Everyone in the hobby who I talk with knows Carvin as the architect of Exquisite, which is super cool. I'm honored for him to join me. I've had fun just understanding Carvin's place in the hobby, just his insight on the industry and then also just he's a collector just like everyone else so want to dig into a lot of different topics but without further ado how you doing today carvin i'm doing great uh thanks for having me on the show and uh love to have this uh great relationship with all your viewers awesome well maybe we start here so what i pick up on from following you and just what different live streams I'm not, we were chat, chatting before I hit record. I'm not on Clubhouse yet, but I know you are. Um, but just feedback from you across everything I've seen and just from other people is that you just have so much passion for this industry. Obviously, you've made a career out of it. So I'm curious just to lead off, like, wh- where does this passion come from? Um, and maybe we can just start there. Yeah, I've always been a collector since uh, I was a young age. And uh, I collected from about six all the way till 12. And then it was kind of like a geek culture. Uh, trading cards was a geek culture. And you'd get shamed on oh, my people like trading cards. Like, how old are you? You know, that type of thing. And then so I had to give it up. And vicariously, my, my sister is four years younger. So she started collecting cards. I kind of collected through her, her eyes instead and uh, helped her progress. But I, you know, I stayed away from trading cards for a while. And then when Upper Deck came back with the, you know, the nice, white paper, double-sided photos, and the holograms. That was it. I was back in. and I was back in full force and then set up at flea markets uh, selling cards. But that was just the beginning. I mean, as we went into the 90s and all the basketball inserts, 90 retro inserts, well, we call them retro now, but back then it was contemporary inserts and I just loved every part of it. Uh, opened a lot of product in my heyday. So that led to my tuition into understanding the hobby and collectability and aesthetics of trading cards. That's awesome. Um, and I think ever it's funny, everyone can relate with your sentiment there on just those cards being considered retro by many new participants now. 
I'd love to know just what, what, what is the background on your connection into, you know, taking your passion from setting up into at flea, flea markets and meeting with other collectors to actually pursuing a career in the sports card industry? How did that all take shape? So after, uh, you know, uh, having the flea markets, I ended up opening a store. Um, I also moved over to Asia for a year and, and saw the boom in Asia in the 90s of how it went from nothing to like 110 stores in Hong Kong and saw how, you know, how everyone was just passionate over there. Uh, but I soon came back and continued my, my business having a store and all that. And then uh, one day, one of the distributors in Canada said, hey, you know, I need someone that knows, you know, hobby knowledge and maybe you can help run the business. And at the time, they were one of the larger distributors in Canada. And from that point on, you know, uh, I worked there for two years, but I got to know, build relationships again with Upper Deck. And I always thought to myself, if I had a chance to work at a card company, that would be like the dream job. And so it came, uh, Upper Deck made, made me an offer and an opportunity to move down to California, which, by the way, when I was like six or seven years old, I loved the Lakers uh, as a team. It was before the Raptors came into, the, in, into existence in Canada. And I, I love the Dodgers. You know, there's always this fascination about California. And I said, wow, I have a shot to moving down to San Diego, one of the most beautiful places in the U.S. And get to, you know, try creating trading cards. And uh, there was just a, an opportunity. Uh, I just couldn't give up. So I had to go. You know, I don't want to look back five years later, 10 years later, and kind of have regrets of not being able to take that opportunity to move down to to California. No, and, and, and obviously you did some pretty substantial things uh, at Upper Deck and we'll get to that. But I'd love to get your perspective on um, working on product and you have been in the weeds on bringing new, new product to life. And you probably know better than a lot of people just the different steps and everything that it takes to bring New product to market. Um, I think you know we we are at a point where we're all on Instagram, we're all on Clubhouse, we're all on Twitter. Everyone's always got opinions, and everyone wants to share when new product drops what they think, um, shortcomings, things that they like. Uh, maybe like a lot of new people that are joining the hobby uh, listen to this show. I'd love to just get your perspective and maybe educate the audience on just like the, the, the diff, all the, that goes into just taking a card from idea to in a hobby box that people are, are opening. So the first thing is, it's, it's come out with the ideas and whether it's possible or not possible, you've got to brainstorm the ideas, what you want to see from your imagination or your creativity onto paper and onto a trading card. I would say, you know, you know, don't have any boxes, don't have any, barriers and just come up with the ideas. And you know, obviously there's gonna be Debbie Downers and I'm one of them myself because I know all the issues with you know league relationships, image rights and all that. And and I think what you have to do is create the idea and then start applying all the parameters around it and and working on the product and then building a PL to make sure that it is a viable product uh, for the card company and also making sure it solves through collectives. I think some people might think that things just happen overnight and um, they just pop up and here we go. And that's how they, they do it. It, it goes, here's the cards that they're in your pack and this is what you get. But I think there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes um, and maybe even more that goes on behind the scenes when it comes to some of these more collectible cards or cards that 
we view as iconic at this point. And you know, one of those sets obviously is is the exquisite set that you're the person along with I'm sure several others that don't get mentioned too often are responsible for for helping bring to market. Maybe like that that idea, I think how how did that come up? Where did that come from? Um, because th- these are cards right now that you know people are still chasing and you've got million dollar sales on on these cards. I, I'd love to know just like the story on that becoming an idea into it being a product that is something that we still talk about today very much. Well, it, I mean, for an exquisite card, it actually goes before exquisite and uh, back to 2001 when I first joined up for that. At that time, uh, some of the salespeople are saying, hey, SP Authentic Football was this kind of lackluster. It did okay in 2000. I think the 2000 class wasn't so, um, just didn't generate a lot of hype. Uh, after, of course, in 99, we had the, the five quarterback class that generated a lot of hype. And although they haven't performed with the exception of probably Donovan McNabb, now that we know that, at that time in 99, it had a lot of hype. 2000 was just an off year. And in 2001, they wanted something different. And the idea was that they wanted autograph patch rookies, yeah, the first ever RPA. And, and when I say RPA, now a lot of people use RPA pretty loosely these days. RPA is what I call the true rookie card patch autograph. So it's the actual rookie card is an autograph patch, not an insert, not a no, uh, rookie insert or insert. So with that being said, that was a huge success. So when I first went in there and in 0102 basketball, it was also a very lackluster class with five. Uh, high school kids coming into the draft, Kwame Brown being the first pick. Uh, they were like, hey, Carvin, uh, you know, we want you to have an autograph patch rookie, or the rookie card being the autograph patch. And I said, I don't think it needs it. And they're like, oh, we, we insist that you do it. Now, there's in, in the inside of a company, there's always the salespeople and there's always the product guys. And the product guys are looking at the vision versus the sales guys are always looking at numbers. And, <laughs> and I challenged the guys that the sales guys, which was, Bold of me, I guess, in the day is to say, well, does it really need it? Basketball did well the last few years. You know, we should do okay numbers and let's save this idea for a future set. And obviously, I will utilize that idea, just probably in a, in a higher end set. So, with that being said, I, you know, I shelved the idea of having the first ever basketball RPA. And I know that in 0102, I did an ultimate collection. There was a rookie card that was an autograph, but then there was a rookie card uh, autograph variation. So the first 25 or 25, you know, kind of what you call a parallel, but it wasn't exactly parallel, it's a variation. And we can explain parallel, the terminology later, uh, that that was uh, part of it, just part of the chase. But in 0203, that's when, I, that's when it happened. I saw that Chosen One magazine with LeBron covered doing the pout and the, and the finger pointing, and I'm like, that's the kid. That's the guy that the whole year is going to be about LeBron James. Uh, I don't know why that cover stuck in my mind at that time. Maybe it was the first ever high school athlete to be on cover. But just the name, because no one's ever heard the name LeBron. And it was just kind of unique. And he had that look. And when you read the the article about him, he he admired Jordan and had the same type of attributes as Jordan. So I thought, this has got to be the kid. So we're going to. We're going to have to pursue him as an exclusive spokesman for, for Upper Deck. And at that point, I knew that we would just revamp the calendar and to, to fit his profile. Strategically, you know, exquisite had to be in that year because you know that with LeBron rookie year, that, w- that would be a high 
success ratio for our product design. So, so that's amazing. And, and I can, as, as someone who works in software and does marketing and does product marketing in software, I can totally relate with your story of the salesperson pushing and saying, we need this, go, we need this now, go. And it sounds like patience is a virtue. And the fact that you waited, uh, uh, you know, that year until the chosen one came aboard, um, and you're able to uh, hold off some salespeople and sell them on the fact that waiting might be better. Um, ended up it it ended up all working out uh, pretty well for you. Yeah, that's um, you know, and then we can discuss more about the ideas behind Exquisite. But obviously, you know, when you when you put out a new product during the year, an exciting year with a lot of hype about the rookies, it just half the battle's done for you because people are excited no matter what happens and introducing new brands at that time. Is, is a strategic part of you know how we how we run businesses uh, because what happens that if it's a lackluster rookie crop, even if you have a great idea and all that, it might be lost because it is a lackluster rookie crop and people are having rookie fatigue with with a you know a lesser crop of rookies. So 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 with the the re- initial release of that product, obviously you know Le- lebron took off like a, a bat out of hell everybody gravitated to him immediately um what was the reaction at upper deck when and what were those signals for you as someone who was working on this product that um that that th- it was taking off at, at a level that you you knew um was going to you know, add sales, add growth, and add further interest to upper deck products outside of the exquisite. Well, just just the as soon as we announced that we had uh, LeBron exclusive, that was it. I remember walking into a sales meeting with all the distributors, and you know, I I think I was the first to present all my products, and they're like, "Just get off the stage. You don't need it. You have LeBron now." So, so it was like, it was, and I kind of got kind of a little bit frustrated with all the distributors, and I said. Come on, guys. Let's at least discuss the products, right? It's not that I just have we just have LeBron, and my job is that much easier. And, <laughs> and it was kind of interesting. I kind of challenged every distributor to provide feedback, and all of a sudden, the first product took an hour long. It's like, okay, now you guys are now extending my time. Let's hurry up and and go through the products. And exquisite, believe it or not, I mean, it's you know, it was a different name to start. We had a different price point. I changed it around to a lower price point, and at that point. Um, we changed the name because one of the salespeople once he came back and said he kind of did not like the first original name. And then there was a con- conceptual card that still today has not been done or brought to market yet. That was part of the exquisite set. And that got changed around too uh, with some feedback from some customers. But needless to say, before the product even hit the market, there was a lot of naysayers, naysayers of exquisite. They felt that this is way too expensive for a product. We were out to lunch and thinking that this would work. And I actually had a, a feedback group, a focus panel in the Northeast. So people from Philadelphia, from New Jersey, from New York, and they just completely roasted me for this product. They were like, we don't know what you're thinking. You're absolutely crazy. You know, I would never support this product. And, you know, you don't even, we don't even know what's in it. So I, I showed the solicitation to them and said, well, that sounds better, but it's still, it's still going to tank. Now, I was like, well, it has LeBron in there. Well, I needed to say, I think history proves that I, I was kind of right on the track and they were wrong. And even when you see them today, like, you know, they'll say, yeah, Harden was, was adamant about this product and we were all against them, but he was right in the long run. So 
And didn't the uh, upper deck news of LeBron come on the same day or within a couple of days of the Nike deal with LeBron? It was the same day. It was the night of the draft lottery. So not the draft, but the draft lottery. And I think the reason was for the deal was that we would do the deal not knowing what team he went to. Just in case he didn't go to the most desirable team, he still had the deal done. So we were the first deal that he signed. And I believe from what people told me on the East Coast, ESPN Sports Center actually reported the deal as opening news as Upper Deck signed LeBron James. Call Upper Deck, uh, call Upper Deck the name of the one, sorry, the company with the one name athletes, including MJ, Kobe, and LeBron. So it was big news. But then by the time it got to Sports Center on the West Coast, that's when LeBron signed his Nike deal for $90 million. So it, it, it was it was a great it was a great night of celebration. I mean, we were pursuing him hard, and thankfully we got him. So, so, so I got to dig into this part because all the all the collector nerds out there want are are half are, have to want to know about this, and I want to know about this. But just talk to me about like the getting that those cards created, like the process um, with getting them to LeBron. What that's like getting the patches on on the cards like just maybe unpack the the creation process of the card well the the challenging part is that from conception of a product or you know conceptualizing a product all the way till the product comes out is usually about an eight to nine month process it's not as you know quick as you know one month and it's done uh, obviously there's there's the fact that you know we have to have the I mean, the uh, memorabilia cards created in hand um, for them to be sent out to LeBron and for him to sign it. So usually it's not just LeBron, it's everyone else. So usually the athletes have about eight weeks to sign the cards. If there's dual autographs, then you're talking about, you know, 16 weeks. Ideally, you give the athlete to sign the cards. So that's one of the challenges of having hard sign autographs. But the, the concept of uh, creating a a set like Exquisite, and right now because of lead times, I think Exquisite or NT, they're probably built up like 12 months out now. Just so you know, making sure that because each each individual athlete has their kind of like their sweet spot where they can sign autographs. And if you missed it, then it become redemptions, or you have to go to a sticker autograph, which is not ideal in some of these high end products. the The scary part is that the amount of time to construct the cards, the patches, and everything. Obviously, you have to cut the patches, put them on a on a trading card, but the amount of time that's worked on actually on the photos, the type is is more man hours. So something that people don't realize is that like when you take a photo, not all photos in the stadium are gonna look exactly like you know the reds may look pink and they look orange. So it requires people to do color correction. Color correction of each photo takes about eight hours of man man hours to, to work on to change it up so it goes to the, it's the same color of red across all the team's colors. So that's one thing that people don't realize, the amount of time that it's necessary to work on, just color correction. Then the guys have to write backs of the cards, make sure they check you know, the numbers, the jersey numbers, their positions, their stats. And it's and it's always it's always crazy when someone sits there, oh, you got you asked me to spell the name wrong. Well, based on the amount of names that you're inputting, you know, one keystroke could be a mistake. And even then, we still have people to review all the stuff and then going to the leagues. So going back to the, you would have other people reviewing all that we have as grids. 
So you type everything, you outprint the grids that were going to be laid onto the plates for printing, and they would review all the grids. And that also goes to the the NBA. Sometimes it would even go to the Players Association. Also, if the athlete is a spokesperson, sometimes the images have to go to the athlete's agent for them to approve their photos as well. Ideally, we try not to do that because that can get crazy. You know, if an athlete agent doesn't like this photo, they'll make it go back and switch everything out. And changes at this at this point just delays everything. So you would, can just imagine the amount of man hours just working on the type, the photos, you know, even before going to press on the cards. Totally. And I definitely, maybe towards the end, we can close out talking about just some current products. I know a lot of the conversation has been about just some of the errors that have existed in the, the, the new prism set. And obviously it's, there's a few things and the hobby will blow it up and it makes it seem like there's a million things, but maybe we can close out talking about that now understanding all the steps that go into the, the process. I'd love to get your reaction just on you mentioned true RPA. You think about RPAs today and you look at that LeBron of 99, 2003 exquisite. And I think undeniably everybody would say that's like the number one greatest RPA of all time. I think I was reading the uh, Adams magazine, uh, basketball card fanatic. And there was a conversation around like, all right, well, what, what, what comes next or what are some of the other, big RPAs. I, I'd love to get just your opinion, maybe just put on your collector hat when you're thinking about just like other, what rounds out maybe the top three based on significance. How would you respond to that? Just speaking of true RPAs as, as you view them. So are you referring to just basketball as a sport or all sports? Let's, let's just do that. Ba- we'll keep it on basketball right now. Yeah. So obviously the NT, the 0910 NT, the Steph Curry is it's a humongous art, uh, rookie auto patch. Uh, that one, we already see what the dollars are at. So obviously, for for brand wise, I mean, NT is an exquisite or the top the top dog in terms of uh, RPAs as we talk about. So that would definitely be one of them. And then for the Dini brands, I think the Immaculate has has kind of branched itself to be an RPA because the that is a true rookie card patch autograph so it is an R, an rpa so I, I always have to put the rookie card because it kind of just clarifies what i'm talking about but like flawless i think the rookie card are, are a diamond card so it's not a true rookie card so you can always tell a true rookie card patch autograph when you flip it over and it's part of a set so that's how that's how i determine it being a rookie card autograph that, that's such an important nugget and i think it's it's often misunderstood so i'm Glad you could add some uh, clarification there. And I, I'd love like just your viewpoints on like the, how, like comparing maybe exquisite to NT, um, obviously the NT to uh, uh, maybe not newer, but just it's the, it's the newer version, I guess, of exquisite, like putting those two cards side by side. And I know you, you might be a little biased because of the time spent on exquisite, but how do you think uh, like, NT is as a brand and a product, and do you, obviously it has a place. But how, how do you? Is it comparing apples to apples, or is it comparing apples to oranges when you're looking at them? Well, NT is is the most desirable rookie card in in the marketplace. Some people will always say that flawless has the uh, game use element uh, of the rookie patches, 
And that does have, you know, some people like the game use for the photos of the event worn uh, patches. But for in terms of like the rookie card, the top dog rookie card seems to be in any, any sport for football and basketball is empty. National Treasures has the number one rookie card. So if, if I was going to buy a rookie card and I, you know, without any worries about how many dollars I'm spending, it would be empty. So that would be the top dog card I would buy. Totally. Yeah. I, I think most people would relate with that, relate to that, but I just had to get your perspective. Um, maybe we can move over. I'd love to maybe you put on just your collector hat. And it seems like just from what I've picked up on um, during like, you know, pandemic, a lot of people, including myself, jumped into Instagram community, jumped into being more active online. Um, and for me, it was like, I'm going to do this. And then that was like the catalyst for this show. But ultimately it was like, I want to feel the pulse of the hobby every day. I want to connect with people that are like me. I'd love to understand like your, from your perspective, like, seems like you've dove head first and you're connecting with a lot of people. Like what, what is it about like collect connecting with collectors online that like, satisfies you on a, on a day-to-day basis? So let, let me uh, go back a few years. So my last year at me was 2014 and I started working for a distribution company. And, and once you leave the manufacturing uh, arena, I uh, working for Upper Deck and Panini, because of the, I guess it's card overload, you kind of get tired or exhausted with cards. And and to a certain degree, you also get tired of certain collectors as well because their demands are always like, well, you know, I know you've been out of the office for a while, but you got to know someone at customer service at Upper Deck or customer service at me. I was like, yeah, but I don't work there anymore. So it's kind of hard for me to connect you. You know, I can try, but, you know, but I also know some of the avenues you can use. And I always tell collectors, I go, well, I really need this to get replaced for you. Can you work through your magic? I'm like, well, I'm not there anymore. And even then, I'm, even if I was working there, I can't really go over everyone's head and say, hey, you got to take care of the situation. You know, people have a role in every company and you got to let, you got to be able to let them handle any crisis or any situations. So it's just that some people like to bypass them and thinking that, you know, many of us can go ahead and help them. So I, I kind of grew a little bit wary of certain collectors, what they would want or what their ask would be. But then, you know, and I was uh, working at a distribution company it allowed me to travel, meet other people overseas. But when the pandemic happened, um, it allowed me to, okay, now I'm at home. I'm not traveling. I'm, I'm really just working remote at home. But a lot of the collectors were reaching out that met me at the 19 nationals. And a lot of people didn't know who I was. And they're like, hey, you know, we would love for you to share some of your stories. And, you know, some of your, some of the why, the whys and, and why not uh, of trading cards. And, that's why I started doing. Unfortunately, every post of mine on Instagram, I like to tell a very long-winded story because I just feel that everyone's just focused on looking at Instagram at photos. But it's not just the photos. I, I agree that a photo can tell a thousand words, but what comes after that thousand word? Totally. Often a one word or that's a second thousand word. Really, it's it's more important to tell you the story associated with every card, the memories. Uh, what did it? What did you sacrifice to get that card? What is the journey? What is that card? What is the connection of that card to, to why you like it? You know, I, I heard from certain collectors saying they love the rainbow foil exquisite, and that just that makes my heart feel warm because that's the reason why I use rainbow foil. A lot of people don't realize that rainbow foil costs almost four times to five times what gold foil is or silver foil. 
But when I saw it for the first time in old 90s sets and upper deck sets and pinnacle, and I don't think I saw them third, but pinnacle and, and upper deck, I saw them as I grew in love with these that foil. So I knew deep down inside, I figured everyone says what's silver and silver rainbow, like the, the hollow foil, or what's gold foil and gold rainbow or gold hollow foil. I go, there's a difference. That's why I told people at upper deck, and they're like, no, we challenge that. You know, it costs us much more. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Look at collectors will have a fine eye for certain details. And when you see those details, you're going to say, oh my God, that's just tug at your heartstrings and you want to have that card. And that's what I felt. And, and only until now, you know, almost 10 years after I left Upper Deck, I finally had that connection with a lot of collectors. And by all means, even when I was at Upper Deck or Panini, I truly do love the collector because that's what I am too. I'm just one of you guys. Just because I had the opportunity to have this job and, and hone my craft doesn't mean that I was, I know the hobby better than you guys. I, I'm, I'm just as like everyone else, but I just watch, I see how people react and, and also how I would react. And, you know, I build cards that I would like, that I would collect. I just wish I did buy some back in the day. <laughs> well, off now. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. Oh man. Uh I, I couldn't agree with you more on just the words in the posts. And I appreciate that on your posts. And um I talk about that a lot. It's like it, it, everyone's sharing pictures of cards, which is great. We want to see people's collections, but use the use the copy, add context, because the more context that you add to your post, I think the more connections you're gonna get. Um I I comment all the time about at exquisite collector on Instagram. He his posts, like of course he's he's posting these awesome exquisite cards that you know you are a part of, and I I they, I look at them all all the time and I'm mesmerized. But then what I like most about it is he tells the story about why he buys them and why he he wants to acquire them. So like I just think that's such an important thing that I wish more people did is like take the time to. Use the use the text, add some copy, because the more you do that, the more people are going to comment and the more connections you're going to make um, with others in the hobby. Absolutely agree. Yeah, I, I love the storytelling of Instagram. And that's part of the reason why I'm on Clubhouse, too, is that you actually have dialogue between people asking questions and also you can tell some of the stories on there. I'm, I'm more of a I'm more suited for telling a story than writing about a story. There, there you go. I see. I, I, I'm gonna have to jump on at some point uh, and get out of my shell. Um, I'd love to get your perspective on just like the different segments in the hobby. I think you know, not everyone does the hobby the same way. Um, there's a ton of money. There's a ton of opportunity. We're going through expansion right now. With expansion, there's different segments. There's collectors. There's people that are in quotes, investors, there are people that flip cards, there's people that buy retail, buy into breaks. I think what I see is a, a lot of um, people are negative to maybe people that aren't um, doing the hobby like them. And I kind of look at it as well, the more people that are participating in sports cards, the more money your sports cards will end up um, accumulating over time. So Maybe just like, I'd love your perspective on just like the hobby expansion in different segments and what you think it means for like the overall health of our industry. First off, I think, I think we need to identify why people are into the hobby, buying cards. So a lot of us that are, you know, been collectors for a while. And I, I say that because I've been 
collecting for 30 years. Some of basically your stuff, you've only been collecting for maybe two or three years. But there's a sense of um, rediscovering our youth and rediscovering our childhood. It's, it's a point of nostalgia for many of us. And once again, when you see a car that you used to collect, oh, I've got to have this car because it's one of my first cards. And for all of those people, they're the true collectors. And I think that at this point, even though the cards go up in value, if you were to sell off a card, you're like, I really want to sell off a card. Yeah, it's a lot of money, but do I want to sell it? And that, that is so key of, you know, it's not hodling for the sake of the price going up. It's hodling because you love that card so much. It means so much. So I think those are the true collectors. Now, of course, we, we, we are seeing more of what you call the flippers, the speculators, the investors, the, the, uh, the people that are grinding and, and just trying to generate money. And that's great too. But the one thing that people will tell you is that they got into the business because they love sports. And once again, you're seeing some of these guys, now they're starting to collect and, and they're starting to have PCs, and which is great. So the, the one aspect of everything about collecting, collectibles in general, number one, there's usually a sense of nostalgia. Even if there isn't, our minds plays tricks on us. Having a hobby makes us happy. And whether you're in a business, where you're in a business to flip cards or as a dealer, typically people, there's some stickiness about trading cards or any collectibles for that matter, whether you're collecting Cabot Patch Kids or Barbie dolls or Funko Pops or comic books, there's always some element, there's some stickiness. And what I always tell people is like, don't get into the negatives of why your collection is better or why we can argue which guy you might think is a better buy for speculating than another guy. We can have really positive debate about it. But don't get into negative saying you're collecting the wrong thing. Or I hear the arguments like trading cards, which is NFTs, like Top Shot. Look at the guys collecting Top Shot have the same psyche as we do. I go, what you want to do is share your experiences with those other people and tell them why trading cards are so great. It's a tangible asset. I can hold it in my hands. I can you know, I can visualize from this one thing, the whole entire highlight. You can talk about your journey as a card collector. And hopefully, if we can pull 10% of the collectors from other collectibles into the trading cards, you know what? I truly believe that trading cards are so addictive that these guys start collecting trading cards. And that's how we're going to grow the hobby. Talking in the negatives and arguing about things is not constructive for us. You know, we don't want people to get turned off and upset in the hobby because they may leave our hobby. We want more and more people staying in the hobby, and that's only going to push this hobby forward. Not saying that it's going to have some this continuous rise of a trading card and worth, but you know how much it's worth. But more, it's just the engagement and involving, you know, more kids, uh, more lapsed collectors in, into our trade uh, train card business, and that I think that's a positive and a win-win for all collectors. So many things you said, I was just shaking my head the whole time and totally can relate. And yet it is addictive. Like I, I, when I'm not working, I'm on my phone, I'm on Instagram, I'm looking on eBay and it, it's fun. And you're right. There's nostalgia. Right? The reason why I collect now is because it reminds me of collecting those players in the nineties when I was growing up and I was a kid. So I think that those feelings are so strong and those feelings are what fuels the growth of the hobby and what we've seen over the last you know 12 18 months has been unprecedented growth with you know increases the, the increasing demand of 
rare and scarce cards, you can look at, you know, the last few rounds of the golden auction sales and seeing, you know, record highs across the board, what's going on at PSA. Like when does you've been, you know, in the hobby, you said for 30 years, you've been collector, you've, you've made a career out of it. Like, what is this like for someone like you who's been deep in the weeds of the hobby? Have you ever seen anything like it? Like, what's your sheer reaction with with the growth and what's going on right now? I can safely say this is has now become the golden era of trading. It used to be the early 90s when I came in for one or two years. That's when everyone was rushing in. But it wasn't the, it was only a few brands at that time. Like Upper Deck would put out one for every sport. Top, same thing. Clear, same thing. You didn't, you saw some other, like other brands like Wildcard back in the day or Pro Set. How uh, you did have other brands, but you know, every brand had a, I guess, a shelf life of about two, three months. So you're collecting the same thing over and over again. Now it's like just one product alone has so many different mutations and permutations and variations and parallels. So there's a lot to collect just even in one set, let alone the 30 different sets across each sport. And I think it's, it's great, but one thing is for sure for new people coming in, it's very confusing. And Confusion can lead to discontent and people may leave. And I think for the stellar, the pillars of our, our, of our industry, the OGs or the people that are true collectors, rather than to argue and get into people's faces about what they collect and what they shouldn't collect, what's more important is to be able to educate them and show them this is what this means. Like, for example, when I talk about RPAs, when you use it loosely and everyone thinks that this is a rookie card patch autograph and it isn't, and they real, come to realize that someone was marketing an RPA and they thought it was a rookie card and it's not a rookie card, that leads to discontent. So I think education is more important than ever, especially with new users in the business or in the hobby and also lapse collectors because lapse collectors, they know rookie cards. The grassroots of collecting is always going to be rookie cards and set collecting. So we have to be able to tell people what is truly a rookie card. If we can't explain that to them, they're never going to grasp it and they can potentially leave. That's my big fear is that with all this people, all the people coming in, celebrities, movies, uh, athletes, people that are sneakerheads, everyone's staying in right now. But we got to keep them in. And education is one of the most important things for these or slash just new, new users. I couldn't agree with you more. And I want to touch on education. Um, but I think that's right. I think uh, last time I was in the in LCS, you hear it all the time. It's the a guy comes up to the counter with some cash and he's he mentioning the sneaker thing. And I last time I was in an LCS, this this gentleman just started buying you know blasters of optic uh, 2019, and he just kept buying them and ripping them and. He didn't even know what he was looking for. Obviously, he he bought him because of Zion. But I, I saw that and I was just like, oh man, this guy just has no idea because he hasn't or no one else has taken the time to educate this gentleman on like what is the the best way to go about this and approach the hobby. And and what what do I know? Maybe he had unlimited funds and he just wanted to have the nostalgia of ripping packs. But I just remember that because me being next to him being like, oh man, like. The, the hobby is a lot different than it was. I guess like in terms of education, like what do you advise people to do? Like what are some like easy steps that you would suggest to people to make sure that 
they when they join the hobby, they're getting educated the right way and they're going to be in the hobby enjoying it for the long haul. Okay, so first off, define what your goal is. Is it going to be your collecting or you are now going to be, uh, you want to flip cards, you want to speculate, invest. And, and at that point, you define your goal. Second of all, uh, there's two acronyms that I absolutely hate for any type of investment or collectings. One is FOMO and one is YOLO. <laughs> Those two things you've got to avoid. And when I, when I say FOMO is, is that not just, it's not just fear of missing out on buying stuff, but also selling stuff. Like people will sell, sell cards and they made a fair amount of profit, but they're always concerned about, oh, where it could be at. Once you, once you sold it, never think about the transaction. If you did well, you did well. A lot of times when people go into and they're planning on flipping cards or speculating or investing, they'll say, if this card goes 5X, I'm selling. Well, if it's 5X and you decide, determined that you're going to sell it at 5X and sell it, if it goes to 15X, don't worry about it. Look, at if, if that was the case, so I'm a father of a two-year-old right now. I would give her all the toys in the world. I said, don't open the packages. Don't play this video game. Don't open the Barbie box because this could be worth money down the road. So there's no enjoyment anymore. And you have to enjoy the hobby, enjoy your investments too as well. So when you have FOMO, it prevents that from happening. So obviously, there is always that sense of, oh, what did I do? Did I make the right mistake? The other thing is, uh, I would say, create relationships. Relationships are so important. So if you were to deal with someone else and they bought a card and they made money, that's always a good thing because they'll remember you know, doing a transaction with you where they made money and they'll look forward to doing another deal with you. Or if they did really well, maybe this, the next deal will be a little bit more in your favor. So find the right people to work with and create relationships. And, and of course, find people with good character. Deal with people with good character is always important. It's like one of the first rules of Warren Buffett is you will always want to work with people with good character and like minds. And, and I, I truly believe that. Because if you don't trust someone, you're always going to think, oh, what do they do? What, what, so I did something wrong. They went for that deal right away. So just deal with people with good character and they'll tell you. Like if you're, you're asking too little, they say, hey, you might want to get a little bit more for your card. Like they'll, most people will say, you know, I don't want, I don't want to take all your money from you. I'll, I'll make sure that, you know, you're compensated well. And, and they, they will treat you properly. And creating those relationships is, is important. And then lastly, I would say, if you're focused on a certain sport, you're focused on a certain area, if you can stay in your lane, that's probably the best, best thing you do. Don't get easily distracted. If you want to go into different sports, then get educated. Do your research, get educated. And once again, don't FOMO because there's always other opportunities. No matter how you look at it, you may miss an opportunity, but there's always other opportunities down the road. So many good nuggets there. I'm about almost all of that, Carvin. That's awesome stuff. Um, before we end with, because I'm curious on what you're collecting, I'd love to hear like what what's in your collection right now. What 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 makes you smile? Um, I'd love to just touch on just uh, some of the Prism stuff. I think that obviously Prism just commands incredible excitement. Um, just new product just dropped. We saw all the gold sales of the last golden auction just hitting unprecedented numbers. Um, to me, it's super exciting. Like. There's, I think there's a contingent of the hobby that's maybe gets upset because of the prices that you know skyrocket and the demand so high. 
people are upset that people are, you know, standing outside targets or whatever. I get excited about it because I think it shows the health of the hobby that there's just, there's that much demand that there's people waiting outside of a freaking target to buy some sports cards. I think that's exciting. Um, I love to get just like, you know, there's a lot of conversations just with some of the, some of the airs that came up or some of the images that were used on with some of the new prism cards. I'd love to get just your perspective being someone who's worked in product for a card company on just like, talk to me, like if you're, if from the, from the Panini perspective, like what, what's your point of view on, on why certain things happen the way they did that maybe cause certain people in the hobby to, you know, not backlash, but have a negative reaction. What What are your thoughts there? Well, there's there's always the aspect of when something's very popular, it's always a, a polarized view from different collectors, right? Some people just love it. Some people just hate it. And you're always going to have that. And, and once again, this is good feedback, constructive criticism, and great debate. You know, I, I know some of the things that have come up, like, you know, one, one example is, you know, I, I've heard the discussion about reusing uh, the same photography. Well, I can explain, you know, for many ways why you re- could re- possibly be reusing photography. I mean, one of them is the Kevin Durant cards. And, and he didn't play last year. So he had a photo shoot with the Brooklyn uh, jersey on. And I think they, people are saying that Panini used that photo over and over again. But yet, just remember, we were working in a time of different times at any time ever in the last century. You know, people are working at half capacity or even lower than half capacity in the office. We just talked about color correction. It's about eight hours of work. So if you take eight hours of work, but then you're only working at 50% capacity, you know, not everyone's in the office and they have to work in the office for color correction. That would be 16 hours of work. And also, Kevin Durant didn't play last year. He just had that photo shoot. And a lot of the, to get ahead of the game, a lot of the products were waiting for the rookies to be drafted and then be featured in the uniforms. Thus, you know, they would get all the veteran, uh, like the grids, the uh, approvals, everything done in, in ahead of time before the season even started. So that could be one of the reasons. Uh, there's also, you know, the fact that I said eight hours of pre-press work or uh, color correction work. Also, you people can't just get to everything as they usually have in the past. So. In a, in a weird, you know, though, though the, the hobbies at an all-time high, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. And people have to recognize that, once again, this is not business as usual. Uh, not just only on a community side or an upper deck or top side within the office, but even at the co-packers, the guys that are printing, uh, you know, doing the packs, they're not at 100% capacity. In fact, I'd be surprised if they're even at 30 to 40% capacity because it requires a lot of man, a man hours, you know, and a lot of people to work on one of those machines. And if you're going every other machine, less people, you can just imagine exponentially how slow it is now. The capacity to get everything done. And so the lead times are becoming longer, but yet there's certain things that you can't get to until something happens. Because there's no more photo shoot anymore. There's no more like at the draft, they would take photos of the draft. But none of that's happening now. Uh, based on what's going on in the world. So real life issues affect everything else. And we have to take that into consideration. That's great perspective. And I appreciate you sharing it because we haven't really heard that point of view yet. Just on the prism front, I know I hear stories and I wasn't collecting in 2012, 
but people were talking about, oh, 2012 Prism. I used to be able to, you know, go into Target, buy a bunch and all there's, you know, it was widely available and the, you know, demand wasn't there. And then Prism is the set right now that is like the the standard. It's not the highest in set, but it's just from a, I, I talk about how it brings together, you know, you've got the collectors and, and investors. There's stuff for everyone in that set. You being someone who's been in the industry for so long, did you anticipate Prism to be what Prism is today? Or what, what are your thoughts there? In the beginning of 2012, when Prism was was created, I mean, everyone recognized that this could be the potential of the next Cox Chrome product, right? So like we talked about exquisite versus national treasuries, Tops Chrome was the iconic set for rookies. So as as we as years go by, and you know Prism has gained um, equity in the marketplace, it has taken over as the most common rookie card that everyone's pursuing. If you want to say it's a, almost like a commodity rookie card, it is. It's it's become the barometer of the, the marketplace and, and the hobby in general. So I think that while Prism has been extremely successful, this is what leads to you know, supply versus demand. And especially in the year of, like I said, the pandemic and everything happening, the supply is definitely, you know, we wish there could be 4X or 5X of supply, but based on where we are in the world, it's that's probably not the case. And thus the demand is just outstanding what people are anticipating. So with all these people coming into the business, into the hobby during a year of pandemic, and then of course, I just explained some of the challenges within the office, within the co-packers, it's not it's not computing to saying oh we can just create more supply to, to help supply the demand and and of course the lines going at the the retail the big uh, box sorry the retailers and and on top of the hobby shops it's it's just the it's just the I don't know I don't even know how to explain it it's that's why I call it the golden era of our hobby right now so there's sure. more and more people I and mean, when when we see like athletes buying cards and they're being very vocal about it and celebrities all buying cards. And it's not just a few, it's a lot of them are now buying cards. I don't even know what, what's in hold for the future. So, you know, either way, up or down, I just, I could not even predict how it's going to happen. Obviously, I think over a period of time, we're still going to see a continuous rise. But, you know, in the next, tomorrow from yesterday, who knows? But we have been seeing a lot of the dollars being spent in basketball, moving to football, moving into baseball. Now we're seeing hockey rise, uh, F1 uh, soccer, soccer is really booming right now. So, so we're seeing different other all these other sports now growing as well. So it's it's a crazy time in, in our hobby. It's pure pandemonium, and I I couldn't believe I was set up after the Super Bowl, and I collect uh, a lot of fo- I collect football, um, not primarily, but a lot of football. I, I collect quarterbacks and. I had my plan and I went in to go execute on my plan. And it wasn't like my plan from the year prior where I was like, how are these cards still the price they were? And it was because, well, duh, Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes are in the Super Bowl and the, the hobby's hotter than ever. And so I think everyone is feeling the demand where there's, there's no off season anymore for any of these sports. People are happy collecting, which I think is good for the, uh, viability of, of, of the sports card market. Um, and maybe we can close here. I, I'd love to know just like, maybe don't share any secrets of cards you're chasing or whatever, but just, uh, I know you focus, you got basketball, hockey, like what are maybe some 
recent purchases or areas of focus that uh, kind of get you out of bed and when you're collecting and, and you're you're looking at it and make make you happy? Well, while I'm, I'm buying multiple things right now, I don't really buy the, the really expensive cards, but I have bought a few. And the reason is, is that uh, for my daughter, who's only two years old, and I'm an old father, so having a young daughter like this, um, I wanted her to at least own some of the cards that I had a huge influence in or that I created. So obviously the two most iconic cards you can think of would be the LeBron Exquisite RPA, which is completely out of my price range. <laughs> so <laughs> I wish I owned one of those. But uh, the other one was a Crosby uh, RPA. So I did end up securing a Crosby RPA for her. And obviously it's not for sale. So I, the, you know, I just think that that card is compared to the LeBron, it's a fraction from the dollar. And believe it or not, Back in 2013, I believe that car was trading higher than LeBron. So, so while LeBron has ascended, the Crosby hasn't. And you know, I secured a, a few more other pieces, but it's really just for her collection. And you know, some exquisite cards I did get, but not the LeBron card. And you know, even some of the cards that uh, while I was working at Panini, I have a few of those pieces for her, just so that you know, later on in, in life, you know, she she can say, hey, my dad was kind of responsible, or um, you know, an influencer on these cards and she can tell that story. And, you know, part of the thing is that, you know, I don't know, you know, how long we're, we're we don't, we never know how long we're on the earth. So part of my sharing with the hobby the stories is that, you know, if something was to happen to me, she would get the stories from someone else that, uh, what I told everyone else. So that, that's part of it is the, it's the continued legacy of what Carbon Chung was in, in the hobby so that it gets to my daughter. I love that so much. That that is that is amazing. That is a that's a great place to close this down. Um, Carvin, everyone, by the way, we, we need to get Carvin, everyone listening, go follow Carvin. I mean, he's the architect of exquisite at Carvin15 on Instagram. I promise uh it, he's a great follow. Um, definitely you're gonna want to follow him after this conversation. Carvin, uh, I think I could talk to you for hours. I really appreciate the time and I know. Everyone out there listening uh, does as well. Thank you so much for your time, man. Well, thank you again for having me on the show. And uh, we can always do a sequel to this or multiple shows afterwards. So I'm always up for it. Appreciate it, man. Take it easy and be well. Okay, you too. Thank you, Brett. These are the types of people I can sit and talk to and learn from for hours on end. Hopefully you felt the same way. Carvin has so many stories. When I hung up, we were talking about Immaculate, the origin story with Madonna. We got to do a part two. That's coming. It's got to happen. Part two with Carvin. Maybe a part three, maybe a part four, maybe a part 20. He's got a ton of knowledge. Definitely go follow Carvin15 on Instagram. If you like what I'm doing, hit that subscribe button, leave a review. Take care of yourself, take care of others around you, and I'll be back next week. 